this is my daughter the other day. She's like, Papa, why can't we go outside? Well, because it's raining. Why? <laughs> well, water's coming out of the sky. <laughs> why? Because it was in a cloud. <laughs> why? Well, clouds form when there's vapor. <laughs> why? I don't know. I don't know. That's I don't know any more things. Those are all the things I know. Why? Because I'm stupid, okay? I'm stupid. I'm going to stop here to be polite to you for a second. But this goes on for hours and hours, and it gets so weird and abstract at the end. It's like, why? Well, because some things are and some things are not. Why? Well, because things that are not can't be. Children ask why all the time. And anyone who has been a parent has probably experienced an exchange just like the one that we saw. Now, I need to give a little warning here for any of you that liked Louis C.K. and may want to go looking for his videos. We had to do a lot of editing in order to be able to show it here this morning. Children are also insatiably curious. Why do lions roar? Why are there so many leaves on the trees? Why is the sky blue? Why is the air invisible? Why are parrots the only speaking birds? Now, there's a question I haven't really ever asked, and the reality is it's not even true. But if these are honest questions, why does it sometimes get so frustrating when children ask them? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is what we saw, which is that relentless repetition of the question. And oftentimes, it seems like it happens at the most inconvenient times. Why does it seem to always happen when we're on the phone or we're in the line at the supermarket? But studies actually show that when preschoolers get an explanation that makes sense to them, they're satisfied. But when they get answers that aren't explanations, they repeat the questions over and over. Parents also get frustrated when they don't know the answer. Another thing that we saw, I was amazed as I looked out on the internet how many websites are devoted to helping parents coaching them on answers to the most common questions that kids ask. I guess we need to go back to school. Why seems to be a question that's hardwired into us from the time we begin to speak. We can see why this question would be important in school or in work, but how does it function as a prayer? So today we're continuing this morning our summer sermon series on one-word prayers. I'm really excited to be back here in the Lexington campus. I've enjoyed the last four or five months over in East Lexington helping to get that new campus launched, but I miss you guys. Um, so let, if you'll indulge me for just a moment, let me have that Academy Award Awards moment where I actually shout out to my East Lexington group, hey, core team, you're doing a great job. Thanks. Come on, let's give them a thank.
As I prepared for today, I realized that the one word prayer, why, is actually a perfect follow-up to Pastor Brian's sermon from last week. We didn't necessarily plan it that way, but as I listened to him preach last week, I, I started counting the number of times when he said, but Lord, and it was followed by the question, why? When we push back against God or others, it's often because we're confused by their actions, and so in many ways, the question why seems natural. But it can be helpful for us to really press deeper into the motives behind that why question. There are questions like, why can't I stay up as late as you? When they're asked um, innocently by a two- or three-year-old, that's one thing. But when it's asked by an older child or a teen, it may mean that they're actually trying to test the limits and the boundaries of what we want to do as parents. So, when do you ask why? Why do you ask why? When you ask why, are you asking out of that innocent curiosity of a child? Or maybe you're testing the boundaries and limits of our Heavenly Father. Does God ever get frustrated with our relentless repetitions of the question why? And is there a difference between asking why that seeks an answer and why that is whispered or even shouted as a prayer? So in order to help us begin to answer those questions this morning, we're going to turn to a little-known prophet in the Old Testament, Habakkuk. How many of you heard of Habakkuk? Okay. Habakkuk spoke in the midst of a really similar situation to what we seem to be facing today. He, he faced a world of violent political upheaval. He prophesied in Judah just before the fall of Jerusalem at a time then before the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon. He's a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, who's a, a little bit better known, and two other little-known prophets, Nahum and Zephaniah. The word in the opening verse, which is translated as prophecy or oracle in English, actually misses a very important part of the Hebrew because the Hebrew word can also be translated burden. Whatever circumstances in which Habakkuk finds himself, he feels so burdened that he cannot find a way to adequately express and he can't contain himself any longer. So he's compelled to shout out, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. These verses describe vividly the very first discovery that we're going to make this morning. Why prayers allow us to shout out, to cry out to God. But what is this burden that causes us to cry out? Sometimes when we cry why, we're trying to express confusion about things that we don't understand. What looks like a laundry list of evils in these first four verses that I just read is actually much more intentional when you look at the structure in the Hebrew. It's actually six words in three pairs that are trying to give us insight into what it is that's going on when we see evil around us. 
wrongful suffering, destructive violence, and legal conflict. When I read these words for the first time, I almost felt like that could be a cry that we could have as we watch TV or listen to the radio or look at things posted on Facebook or Twitter. They seem so current. So many of us watched in horror a year and a half ago as wrongful suffering happened as innocent children were shot at Sandy Hook. People are speaking out in anger and frustration these past two weeks over the destructive violence that brought down a commercial airliner who was supposed to be flying over airspace where that shouldn't have been shot down in the Ukraine. And then it seems like lately we've been shaking our heads in confusion almost every few days over the legal conflict of an immigration system that seems to be irreparably broken. But we also cry out to express frustration at the things that we do know. Think again of the tragic circumstances that I just listed. Yes, there are elements of that that we don't understand. But I think sometimes we understand more than we allow ourselves to admit. How many times after the school shootings have we talked about gun control and better school security and helping the mentally ill to be able to um, be embraced and help them deal with their problems? And then it seems like all of that's huge in the news for a few days and then we all go back to our lives, our everyday lives, until another shooting happens. And then it surfaces again. And I think that's when the frustration really breaks out because why aren't we doing something? Are we just going to keep letting this happen over and over? But I think sometimes it's because we can't agree. Sometimes it's because no one seems to have the will or the ability to be able to risk what needs to be done. And Habakkuk, interestingly enough, is not as confused as he originally sounds in those words. In fact, he actually admits later in the chapter that he knows that what's happening is a result of the sin of the nation of Israel. Too often we look at tragedy and we cry out injustice out there. It's someone else's fault when the reality is is that the source of the injustice is right in our midst and sometimes it's even right in our own hearts. Because of our sin or neglect, for both can be sins, sins of commission and sins of omission. But then in verse 4, he points out what I believe in some ways is one of the root causes of the corruption that he's been describing. He says, therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The word here for law is not this intensive list of laws and regulations that are written down in books. It's actually talking about the instruction of the law or direction from the Lord. So when he says this law is paralyzed, it's because that good, just direction and instruction of the Lord, Lord is unable to go out. It's impeded and hindered from accomplishing the very purposes for which it had been written. The wicked so surround the righteous that judgment is bent. <laughs> it's not broken because if it was broken, we'd probably realize there was something wrong. It's just bent. It's out of whack. It's actually causing tool, things that are meant to be tools of justice to actually be used as tools of injustice. 
Initially, I struggled with preaching on Habakkuk because I know how complex the why questions can be. In fact, I asked myself, who am I to be able to even try to answer those why questions? Volumes and volumes of books have been written over centuries trying to answer the problem of pain and suffering, the global conflict, and how am I ever, in a 30-minute sermon, going to be able to begin to address that? Fortunately, as I pressed more into the story of Habakkuk, I realized that I didn't have to. Last week, Pastor Brian told us that but brings us to an open door, and then we have to decide whether we're going to walk through that open door or not. The prayer why actually leads us on a journey if we are willing to walk through that open door. The question how long in verse 2 alerts us to the reality that there may not be an immediate answer to the question or the prayer that we're praying. In fact, waiting for God to act seems to be a regular part of Israel's history. Waiting for children to be born, waiting for inheritances to be received, waiting for prophecies and promises to be fulfilled, sometimes taking hundreds of years and a whole generation or generations die out. So that brings us to our second discovery for this morning. Why prayers don't always receive an immediate answer. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jim talked about the importance of what he called Selah moments in the Psalms, a musical interlude for the purpose of reflection, a weighty pause. But what we find in Scripture is that Selah moments are not limited to just the words in the Psalms, but there are Selah moments scattered throughout Scripture. In fact, in the book of Habakkuk, there are three, and they're wonderfully paced in thirds in the book giving us times as we work through all of these issues to pause and to reflect and to think. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and wonder what answer I am to give to this complaint. I've fallen in love with this verse because it says I don't have to have an answer when someone asks why. Remember what we said at the beginning, that one of the reasons that parents don't like the why question is because they're not prepared to answer. They're trying to fake it. And when they do, the answers are unsatisfying. But don't we sometimes find ourselves in the same position? Especially around matters of faith, don't we find it when someone asks a question and we feel like we have to answer whether we've got the answer or not? We are not comfortable with saying, I don't know. So in nervousness, instead, we give pat answers or pithy sayings, something we heard a long time ago, and we just hope that it applies to the situation that we're speaking into. But what we forget is that people can usually tell when we're not being authentic. (laughs) Our answers aren't satisfying. So we'd be better off following Habakkuk's example going to our watchtower, wherever that is, and being attentive and wait, sometimes bringing that person with us so that they can wait with us as we seek what we want to know. And the other problem is we're a culture of instant gratification. We aren't comfortable with waiting, and we aren't comfortable with silence. In fact, I stumbled across an article published in the New York Times called No Time to Think. 
Some, it summarizes a study that was actually published last month in the Journal of Science, and it shows how far people in our society will go to avoid introspection. It found that the majority of participants reported that they found it unpleasant to be alone in a room with their thoughts for just 6 to 15 minutes. Not very long, huh? In one experiment, 64% of men and 15% of women actually began self-administering electric shocks when they were left alone to think. Really? That is extreme avoidance in my mind. Not surprisingly, the results created a stir, causing speculation as to what might actually be behind those results. And it could be, um, and so here's what they found, it could be because human beings, when left alone, tend to dwell on what is wrong in their lives. And until there's a resolution, or at least some kind of understanding or acceptance, those thoughts reverberate in our heads. But you can't solve or let go of problems if you don't allow yourself time to think about them. Studies further suggest that not giving yourself time to reflect actually impairs your ability to be empathetic with others. And finally, researchers have also found that an idle mind is a crucible of creativity. Do you hear how important waiting and silence is? It brings understanding and acceptance and empathy and creativity. Instead of running from silence, we should actually run to silence. There is so much there to be found. But there's another important part of these Selah moments that we dare not miss. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Sometimes we do just need to be silent in the presence of the Lord. It goes with the waiting and attentiveness that we've already been talking about, but it's especially important in the presence of a holy and sovereign God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You heard that read earlier. And while that is an important perspective, many times when people hear those words, they're not very satisfying. In fact, if we return to our parent-child metaphor that we were talking about earlier, it can almost feel like it's parallel to the time when your parents said, because I told you so. And that is almost what it sounds like God is saying. But we have to put those words in the perspective, not as an earthly parent, but as a loving heavenly father. We have to look to the character of God, including what's referred to sometimes as the three omni-attributes, omnipotence, all-power, omniscience, all-knowledge, and omnipresence, presence everywhere. God is not an earthly parent. God is the only one with enough wisdom to be able to balance grace and truth, justice and mercy. In fact, when I learned that, it was one of the biggest motivators for me to be better silent, be, be silent more often because I knew that I didn't have the wisdom and I needed to be able to hand these situations over to God. So what did I do? I learned to pray more. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. He prays. The entire third chapter of this book is a prayer. We've been talking this summer about the importance of one-word prayers, but sometimes lengthy prayers are important as well, especially if we're on a difficult journey. 
And so this brings us to the final thing that we discover about why today. Why prayers don't need an answer in order to lead us to a better place. If we don't get the answer we want or don't like the answer we get, we have a choice to make. We can actually turn and walk away. We might actually become bitter because we think God is ignoring us. Or we can make a choice. We can make a choice to pursue the path, the journey that God set before us. And maybe in that journey, we'll find understanding. Notice I didn't say answer. I said understanding. Ultimately, what we all need when we suffer is not explanations or reasons, but meaning. The why that seeks an explanation or a plan looks backward. The why that seeks meaning by bringing some future good out of the agony looks forward. The former invites passivity and resignation. The latter seeks a creative possibility. Meaning and purpose can be part of the way forward when we don't get an answer. But at some point, even the pursuit of understanding gets exhausting. And it's that, at that point that the why prayer turns into a prayer of faithfulness. Right in the middle of this wonderful little book is a verse that the Apostle Paul actually picks up on and quotes twice in the New Testament. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. This is the more practical side of faithful living. The Hebrew word is also translated as steadiness, reliability, even honesty. Faithfulness isn't always about believing. Sometimes it's being willing to ask the question, why, and not give up. In fact, I learned a very important thing about Habakkuk. His name means embrace. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk has exhausted himself with all of his why questions. And at the end of his prayer, he realizes that he is not going to find hope in his circumstances. He can only find hope in a person. God had shown up in the life of Israel so many times in the past, and because of that, he could trust that God would show up in his timing in the future. And we can understand that as well. 22 years ago, I found myself in a similar place to Habakkuk. Um, the circumstances around me were out of control, and I was so confused by what was going on. My then three-year-old son, Tim, was in Children's Hospital, and he was near death from E. coli from an undercooked hamburger. I just didn't understand what was happening. But the morning after that, um, but then, then a miracle happened. 
And it wasn't just those of us with faith that realized it was a miracle because the morning after that day that we almost lost our son, I walked into his room in Children's Hospital and the head of the ICU and two of his renal doctors were standing around his bed. And I will never forget what that ICU doctor said to me that day. He said, most of us around here don't believe in God but there's a whole lot of us that are reconsidering this morning because there is no reason, no medical reason that your son should be alive. There was still a long and challenging journey ahead, and there were going to be many more why questions in that, in that journey, but we did get the answer we wanted, a miracle, and for that I will be forever grateful. But little did I know at that time that the why question would resurface in a much more difficult way a year later. When I picked up the phone in my kitchen and I got a call from a good friend who lived in California telling me, that her 18-month-old son had died in a drowning accident in their backyard pool. Becky and I had been in a Bible study at Park Street with three other women, and we had spent an entire year wrestling with all kinds of matters of faith. So when I got this call, I was devastated. And then this very strange question started surfacing in my mind. God, why did you save Tim and not William? They're people of faith. They prayed just as hard for William as we did for Tim. I can't believe that our prayers were any more effective than theirs. Why, Lord, why did you not save William? That why question would linger and resurface for years. But four years later, Becky, my friend Becky, had a book published. It's titled, A Mother's Grief Observed. Interestingly enough, it didn't try to answer the why question. It was simply a recording of her journal, a journal that she kept in the days and weeks and months following William's death, where she recorded so many of the ways that she wrestled with what she was experiencing. I hadn't looked at it for years, but God prompted me to pick it up again for the preparation of the sermon. And as I was flipping to the back, to the epilogue, I actually ran across the verses from Habakkuk that I just read for you. I was like amazed. I thought, great confirmation, God. (laughs) On one of the pages near those verses, she wrote, When William died, I didn't try to deceive myself. I knew that my puny escapes would not work in this crisis The size of the tragedy peeled layers off of me, and I could see, exposed underneath, my trembling heart, vulnerable, open in the hand of God. How was my biggest question? It wasn't why. How am I going to make it through this? I was desperate for something new, something genuine. As we pray why, there will be moments where we still long for an answer, where the confusion of our present circumstances so overpowers what God has done in the past that it doesn't seem to be enough anymore. And in the midst of that confusion, we can feel adrift and lost at sea, at the mercy of the circumstances that surround us. So before I close this morning, I want to take a few moments and give all of you a chance to sit before God and spend a few moments reflecting on what the why questions are in your life right now. Where are you praying or asking why?
Where are you on your journey? Are you still looking for an answer or are you waiting? Are you waiting in discouragement or despair or are you waiting attentively and expectantly? Ask God to meet you there as you listen to this song by Ben Rector. I feel just like a sailboat I don't know where I'm headed But you can't make the wind blow From a sailboat I've seen the sun I felt the rain on my skin I've been lost and found Mostly I've been waiting Oh, I'm out in the waves And I'm hoping and praying Please let this wind blow me home Night after night There's an empty horizon My God, do I feel so alone Sometimes like most times I feel just like a sailboat mm. I'm pretty sure I'm hurt At least I know I'm speaking But I feel like a fool Cause I can't hear like a sailboat. I love this image of the journey that we're on. The idea of this wind that I believe is the wind or breath of the Holy Spirit blowing the wind in our sails as we journey home. Whether those winds or gentle breezes or violent storms, if we can relearn how to cooperate with that Holy Spirit, we will find our way to a better place with God before us, behind us, and alongside us. God met my friend Becky as she cried out to God. 
she said, I knew that anything that could bring me healing would have to be related to God. I believed God was real and true, so I asked him to help me. I turned in faith to God in this, my blackest time. I called out to God. And God himself, personal and real, was the answer to something new, to something genuine. In fact, it's her story that helped guide me to our big idea for today. Praying why may not always lead us to an answer, but it can always lead us to a deeper relationship with God. Becky learned through her journey that God really did understand her pain and suffering and that it, he, his, her relationship with him mattered more than any answer that he could give her. In fact, one of the turning points for her was realizing that God was a bereaved parent too, just like Becky and Bob. He loved us so much that he allowed his son to die. Obscene, the death of God's son. But it was required for the emergency reweaving of his union with us. Although he wept as Jesus was killed and the earth groaned and shook in disbelief, God held back his limitless power. He refused to intervene. He let Jesus die, but he saved man. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you that um, you walk with us, that you walk before us, you walk behind us, you walk alongside us, and that no matter how big our why questions are, that you will help walk with us on the journey. Lord, I know that sometimes you do give answers, but sometimes the answers are just beyond our comprehension. And so, Lord, may we, may we learn through what we've heard today that you are enough, ultimately, that you really are the answer to our questions of why. Amen.